1 John 4, verses 7 through 12. Uh, give ear to the word of God. John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not, uh, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God's love, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. The same as the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, once again, uh, let's briefly pray and ask God's blessing upon his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word, that it is living and active, and, and uh, that it, it always accomplishes what you send it forth to do. It accomplishes your purposes in your people as well as in the lost uh, we ask, uh, we thank you that uh, even as the book of Isaiah mentions about the rain and the, and the dew, that your word always uh, does this. It always makes things grow and sprout forth like the rain and the dew does, and it always accomplishes your purpose. Thank you, Lord, that your word never returns void. And so we ask once again as we come to the preaching of your holy word that you might be pleased to fill us with your Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word. Make us grow in our faith. Uh, sanctify your saints and convert the lost for it's in Christ's name that we pray Amen Well as I mentioned uh, and if you were here last Sunday I'm sure you remember uh, many of you that we preached we looked at this particular passage verses 7 through 12 last Sunday and uh, as I was thinking about it after the fact um, I couldn't help but think that we really kind of just scratched the surface of everything that's in that text it's one of the um, I don't know, frustration sounds too negative of a term, but it's one of the, the uh, I guess, holy frustrations of a pastor and a preacher that, that you never feel like you do a passage justice. And that's the case pretty much every every Lord's Day in some way. We're, I'm thankful that God uses, uh, one of my old colleagues used to say, uh, draws straight lines with, with uh, crooked sticks, uh, even those crooked sticks who are in the pulpit. And uh, so we're thankful for that. But I, I kept thinking there's so much more in this passage that we could spend some time on. Um, and, for instance, uh, there's a lot more in this text that I didn't really spend that much time on last week about the, the nature and perfections of God. Remember John in verses 8 and also later in verse 16 says that God is love. He doesn't just say love is from God, which he does say that, but he goes further than that and says God himself is love. That may sound very simple if we don't think about it much, but there's really a depth of theology there uh, found there that we could spend, you know, literally we could spend weeks looking at that one verse and not really uh, come to the end of that subject. Uh, Later in verse 12, John says something that also sounds very simple, but really there's a lot that it has to teach us where he says, no one has ever seen God, verse 12. There's a lot that that verse, that, that truth has to teach us about the nature of God, uh, his infinity, the fact that God is a spirit, his omnipresence. All these things have to do, uh, are related to that in some way. And there's no doubt we could spend a lot of time on that particular aspect of our text. And that would be more than a little bit uh, profitable and edifying to us if we were to do so. Um, but personally, of all the things that John said to us in verses 7 to 12, For me, at least, the one thing that kind of jumped off the page 
at me and was stuck in my mind uh, all week, kind of rattling around in my head all week, was that statement in verse 10 where John says that God, quote, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Um, maybe as, as I was reading that, I even stumbled over it as I was reading the text this morning, uh, that word. Maybe you, you're not very familiar with that word. That, that wouldn't surprise uh, me if that were the case. But that word propitiation has fallen on hard times over the past century or so, and that is a real shame. It's a real shame that we are not that familiar, many of us, with that word and, and what it means. Um, some people say that that... Uh, well, I've got some tinny feedback going on here. Sorry, apologize. But uh, some theologians over the years have, have come to believe that the term propitiation is beneath God's dignity. They believe that somehow uh, it is a, an idea that is pagan in origin and too closely resembles kind of the false gods of antiquity who were thought to be prone toward venting their anger at mankind in what they say is you know, vindictive outbursts of rage. Now, that's certainly not how we are to think of God, but that is certainly not what our term in this passage conveys. Uh, the term propitiation has to do with the wrath of God against, against sin. And at the end of the day, at least I believe, that is why some are, are so uncomfortable using the term because it deals with the subject of the wrath of God, which is very clearly taught in Scripture. And so some prefer to use alternate terms for that uh, to describe the work of Christ on the cross for our salvation. If you are looking at sometimes other translations uh, such as the RSV, which thankfully is not really much in use these days, but other ones, they will actually substitute other words in place of propitiation, things like expiation and other things, which we'll talk about a little bit uh, later in the sermon, Lord willing. But, but it has to do with the wrath of God, the word propitiation does. And you know, if you think about it, and I know I, I lament this in the pulpit more than I should maybe, but there's a number of biblical terms, theological words that we... Uh, have seen kind of fall out of common use in the Christian vocabulary in our day. Uh, one of the ones that comes to my mind with that is the word providence. The word providence, for example. Generations ago, uh, the word providence and the truth that, of Scripture that it conveys were, were very commonplace in the thinking, writing, and conversations of, of Christians. And yet you rarely hear that word today, which I think is a, a real loss uh, to us. Well, I think in a, in a similar way that can also be said of the word propitiation. Uh, some of you know one of my favorite books uh, by J.I. Packer called Knowing God. If you've never read that, I highly recommend it to you. Uh, very edifying, very helpful book about God and about knowing God, just like the title suggests. Uh, in that book, he has a, chap a chapter titled uh, The Heart of the Gospel, and that chapter is basically, most of it, is really an, ex an expounding of the term and the truth of propitiation, uh, that, that doctrine. There he writes the following. He says, Packer says, Has the word propitiation any place in your Christianity? In the faith of the New Testament, it is central. The love of God, the taking of human form by the Son, the meaning of the cross, Christ's heavenly intercession, the way of salvation, all are to be explained in terms of it. And any explanation from which the thought of propitiation is missing will be incomplete and indeed actually misleading by New Testament standards. 
It sounds like that word and the truth it conveys is rather important uh, and even central in some ways to our understanding of the gospel. And I believe he's right. He goes so far as to say this. He says, a gospel without propitiation at its heart is another gospel than that which Paul preached. And I would add that John preached. The implications of this must not be evaded. Like We might not be used to the word, but what that word means and the scriptural use of it really is central to the Christian faith and even central to the gospel itself. And so it's my hope that uh, this morning we'll at least take some, uh, some baby steps this morning toward a recovery of this use uh, of this term of propitiation since it's so central to the Christian faith of the New Testament, not just for its own sake, not just so that we can have a bigger vocabulary, but more importantly so that you and I will have a firmer grasp uh, and appreciation of the love of God and of the work of Christ as our Redeemer and Savior. After all, as Packer says, propitiation, the truth of that doctrine, is at the very heart of, of the gospel. So the first thing uh, may, not, may not be very exciting, but the first thing we have to do, thank you, Jonathan, uh, is to find our terms. You know, very often is the case, uh, this, is, this one's on channel one, uh, very often it's the case as Christians that we, we can tend to use different biblical words, even theological words, without clearly defining them uh, or thinking through what that word means. We tend to kind of toss them around in common conversation amongst each other. Uh, even words like grace, when's the last time you actually thought through what the word grace means? You know, we, we kind of throw these things around. Well, I think that we need to be careful and define our terms. And so what, what is propitiation? What does that word mean? It's often said that it's related to the Old Testament idea of a sacrifice being a covering for sin. You might have heard uh, Yom Kippur in the Jewish religious calendar. Uh, Yom is the word for day, and Kippur is the word for cover. It's the, so it's the day of covering or the day of, we call it the day of atonement. Sometimes in your Bible, those sections that deal with that, the heading, the headings are added by the, by the publishers, but it'll say the Day of Atonement. What's well, Yom Kippur? It's the Day of Covering, and covering as the idea of covering over our sins. As you can see the kind of idea that is being uh, conveyed there. Uh, John Murray, a great theologian, I love him a lot, he writes this, uh, to propitiate means to placate, pacify, appease, conciliate, and it is this idea that is applied to the atonement accomplished by Christ. So it has to do with what Christ accomplished on the cross for our salvation. Uh, Murray goes on and says, propitiation presupposes the wrath and displeasure of God for our sins. And the purpose of propitiation is the removal of this displeasure. There's the idea of what, what we're dealing with here. Joel Beakey says, he summarizes it as follows. He says, according to the doctrine of propitiation, Christ offered himself as a sacrifice to appease the anger of God against sinners by bearing that wrath himself. So propitiation is not just the removal of sin and its penalty. That's conveyed by the term expiation. Uh, but it's rather really the full satisfaction of the wrath of God by the sacrificial death of a substitute. That is what propitiation is. The full satisfaction of of the wrath of God by the sacrificial death of a substitute. That is how we are to view the cross of Jesus Christ. Last Sunday we looked a little bit briefly at Romans 3, verses 23 to 26. There Paul writes, uh, and it's one of, the, one of the three or four passages in the New Testament that uses this word. And here Paul says, 
For all have sinned, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here it is. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, here it is, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So that's, that's what, what Paul is talking about when he uses the term. In other words, how can an infinitely holy and just God, which is what God is, how can an infinitely holy and just God justify, declare righteous, sinners like us who are deserving on our own of nothing but his wrath and condemnation before him because of our infinite debt of sin. God cannot lie. Can God lie? You know, that's one of the, the, um, the accusations that the Roman Catholic Church made against the Protestant reformers. They said, oh, your doctrine of justification by faith alone is a legal fiction. They would say, you're making God a liar because you're saying in your, in your doctrine of justification that God is saying, of a believer, you are righteous in my sight. How can God who cannot lie and is holy and just look at a sinner like us and say righteous? You see what they're saying? But they, they don't understand what God's actually doing. They, they believe that justification is God making you righteous. It's not. It's to declare you righteous in Christ. How is it that God can make or declare you righteous in his sight? And forgive your sins by putting Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood. How can God save and justify sinners without being unjust and violating his own holiness and justice? How can God save you and I as sinners and not deny himself and go against his own holy nature? He does it by putting forward his own son, Jesus Christ, as a propitiation by his blood. He does so by sending his son, as John says in 1 John 4.10, sending forth his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, this truth of a substitute atoning or propitiating God's wrath is what is pictured and prophesied all through the Old Testament, but especially in Isaiah chapter 53, a very familiar text. Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 6. He doesn't use the word, but he really is giving us a picture of it. There the prophet Isaiah writes, Surely he, and this is talking of Christ, Surely he has borne or carried our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And then he goes on, But he, that's Christ, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, upon Christ, was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace, and with his wounds, or by his wounds, we are healed. And then, then he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and what has God done? And the Lord has laid on him, on Christ his son, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In other words, he, he transferred, so to speak, our debt of sin, which is infinite, to Christ on the cross and poured out his wrath on his son in our place. 
The chastisement that was upon him is what brought us peace with God, the prophet Isaiah says. So to say that Christ was the propitiation for our sin is to simply say that Christ took upon himself the wrath of God for our sins in our place. That's what it means when Isaiah says that God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all and crushed him instead of us for our iniquities. He, treats, he treated Christ his son according to our sins and repaid him for our debt of sin by pouring his wrath on him in our place. His death in our place, his taking of the wrath of God for us, think about this, was so total and so complete that it brought us peace with God, Isaiah 53, 5. And that's why, what did Jesus say on the cross as he died? Remember one of the sayings of the cross? What is the thing that Jesus said right before he gave up his spirit and died and laid his life down? He said, it is finished, John 19, verse 30, is what he said on the cross. It is finished meant that his work of redemption was complete. You could say, and it's often been said of that passage, it has the idea of something being paid in full. The debt was paid to the fullest when Christ laid down his life on the cross. Well, the next thing I want to briefly look at, and we saw this a little bit last Sunday as well, is that we don't want to just see the nature and definition of, of propitiation, what that means, but we need to see, because it's what John focuses on, we need to understand the source of that propitiation. And that source is not just the love of Christ, as important as that is. That source is also the love of God the Father as well. Look again at 1 John 4, 9 to 10. It says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us. It was revealed or shown to us. What is it? That God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him, in this is love, not that we have loved God, because we didn't, but that he loved us and did what? Sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So what, what was the source or the motivating thing behind Christ becoming a propitiation for our sins? The love of God. In fact, John goes so far as to say, here's how God showed us his love or made it manifest among us. Do you see here why uh, the idea of propitiation, the, the, the biblical use of that word, cannot be said to cast God or recast God uh, in the image of the pagan deities of the nations? It, you know, in, in the pagan version, you know, God is kind of propitiated by us. You know, we, we give God things, we offer sacrifices, and then God, okay, God calms down, so to speak, and, and, and stops being wrathful. That's a pagan notion. Here, what happens? God himself, because he loved the unlovable, sends his son forth uh, that we might live through his propitiation. Um, God, God is not as the pagan gods of the heathen who were prone to fits of caprice and rage and all these things and needed to be bought off by the offerings of his subjects. Uh, Packer, in that same book, writes this. He says, In paganism, man propitiates his gods. And religion becomes a form of commercialism and indeed of bribery. In Christianity, however, God propitiates his wrath by his own action. He sent forth Jesus Christ, says Paul, to be a propitiation, Romans 4.25. He sent his, or Romans 3.25 rather. He sent his son, says John in our text, in verse 10, how? Or to, to, to do what? He sent forth his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And why does God do that? 
out of his love for sinners like us. So John tells us unmistakably that the source, the reason that Christ became the propitiation for our sins is the love of God. The love of God. In fact, it can only be rightly understood, propitiation that is, can only rightly be understood in terms of the undeserved love of God towards sinners like us. And you could say, you could turn that around as well, you could say that the love of God toward us really can't be rightly understood and appreciated apart from the doctrine of propitiation and Christ becoming that for our salvation. John says that God sending his only begotten son into the world to be the propitiation for our sins was the very manifestation of the love of God toward us. Think about this, that God should love us as his creatures even if we had no debt of sin would be something that I think it would be enough uh, that we would be amazed. I think it would be unfathomable to us if we had never sinned. Let's just pretend for a, for a brief moment something unthinkable. Let's pretend sin never entered into the world uh, in Adam and Eve and the fall in the garden. And you and I never sinned in thought, word, or deed. We don't have a sinful nature. All the, That's what it was going to be like in heaven. Right, But we don't know about that. We have no idea what that would be like in this life. But let's just pretend for a moment that's the case. Even if we were sinless and always did what God told us to do, it would be shocking and amazing, unfathomable to us that God would love us. Why would God love his creation? And yet, when you, when you add sin to the picture, it's, it's mind-boggling that God would set his love upon us at all when we were still sinners. And yet, what, is, what, is, what does Paul say? Paul says uh, that God sent his love upon us as when we were sinners. He sent his son to die for us while we were, Romans 5.10, while we were yet enemies of God, Paul says. And those who were by nature, Paul says in Ephesians 2.3, those who were by nature children of wrath, God set his love upon us from before the foundation of the world. It's incomprehensible if we think about it at all. No wonder John says, uh, in this is love, not that we have loved God, uh, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Likewise, Romans chapter 5, verses 7 to 8, Paul says much the same thing there. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would, would dare even to die kind of hypothetical there. Then he says, but God shows his love for us. How? In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So if you're here this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, uh, I'll just ask this. Do you ever, have you ever, do you even now even struggle with doubt as to whether or not at times God loves you? You don't have to raise your hand, right? Do you ever struggle whether or not God actually loves you? Do you, you know, we don't always feel loved, right? Why is that? Maybe your present circumstances in your life, whatever those may be, your current trials of some kind, uh, things, your expectations for your life weren't uh, met in some way. Maybe because of some kind of suffering, which can be, you know, think about the things we pray for every time we meet here on Sunday mornings, some of the severe trials that even the best of believers go through in their health and other things. Um, 
or because of your struggle with sin and your many shortcomings. If you have a sensitive conscience, which I hope that we all do, you think about your sin, uh, you think it through, and you realize how the, the struggle with sin you still have after years of knowing the Lord. And sometimes we can, that can let us kind of lead us to thinking, you know, how could God possibly still love someone like me? Well, what's, what's the answer to that? What, what is the one thing, the one crowning evidence, among other things, but the, the greatest one, to convince you as a believer that God loves you in Christ? Look to the cross. It sounds oversimplified, you know, oversimplified and trite, and, 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 but you look to the cross of Christ. It's there that the love of God for sinners, John says, is most clearly manifested towards us and revealed for all to see. He's not holding, it may feel like he's holding things out on you, but he's not. If he's given forth his son, there's nothing greater than that he could possibly give. And that leads us to our third and final point this morning. The truth of God loving us so much that he sent forth his only begotten son to be the propitiation for our sins should give great assurance of God's love and of our salvation to all who have believed on Jesus Christ. That's, you know, if you've been with us throughout this, these, these series, sermons of, ser, series of sermons on 1 John, that's the theme of 1 John, is assurance. It shouldn't shock us that that's, somehow this comes up uh, in our text. In fact, I think that's why John brings it up, among other things, in our text. This is also what Paul says in Romans 5, verses 9 through 11. Paul says there, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. More. How, do you, how are you saved more than, than what you were saved when Christ died? He says, uh, much more shall we be saved by him, by Christ from the wrath of God. Why? For if while we were enemies, enemies of God, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, there's that phrase again, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He's contrasting the death of Christ for your salvation with his resurrection. He not only died for you as a believer, he also lives right now for you to make intercession before, for you but at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And what else is he saying there? He's saying... If he did that for you and saved you while you were yet his sinner and while you were still his enemy, what will he do for you now that you've been reconciled to him? That's why he says much more. If God did all that when you were still his enemy, how much more will God take care of you and save you now that he has reconciled you to himself by the death of his son? Much more. If God so loved us while we were still sinners and yet his enemies, that he reconciled us to himself by the death of his son, how much more should you and I now be assured of his great love and care for us after being reconciled to him by the death of his son and faith in Christ? And notice Paul there twice says, much more. Much more now having been justified by his blood. What does that mean? Sort of defining our terms again. Justification, I'll give you the, the $5 uh, dollar, uh, definition, five-penny definition. Being justified means being forgiven of all your sins and being accepted as righteous in God's sight only for the righteousness of Christ put to your account and received by faith alone. 
That's Westminster Shorter Catechism 33, in case anybody was wondering. But, but it's forgiveness of your sins, you know, taking away of the debt of your sin because it's paid for by Christ. And what's the other half? He doesn't just take away your sins. He accounts to you and I the perfect spotless righteousness of Christ by faith alone. That is why God can look upon you and me as sinners and say, if you're in Christ, righteous, and accepts you as righteous in his sight and forgives you for your sins. So God has done that, and because of that, we shall much more be saved by him from the wrath of God. And much more, he says in verse 10, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. If God would send forth his son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for your sins, then there is nothing left to pay. There's nothing left to pay. If you're a believer in Jesus and have trusted in him alone for salvation from your sin, then the infinite debt of your sins and mine has been paid in full by the death of Christ on the cross. He doesn't pay 99.999% and leave that little bit of suffering left for you. Nor could he. That little bit of suffering, so-called, would be infinite. It would be, it would be too much for us. He paid all of it. What's the old hymn say? Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. In Christ your sins have been freely and fully forgiven because the wrath of God that was due unto you on account of your many sins against God. It, they have not been ignored they have not been swept under the rug or rationalized or any such thing. They have been punished to the fullest extent in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ standing in your place on the cross. That's why propitiation is such a central issue to the gospel. And Isaiah says there in that passage in chapter 53, the Lord has laid upon Christ the iniquity of a soul and poured out his wrath on him in our place. That's why we can sing as we did earlier in the service this morning, that song, Man of Sorrows, what a name, we sang, uh, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, hallelujah, what a savior. In my place condemned he stood and sealed our pardon with his blood. Well, in conclusion, just a few things briefly about propitiation, about the death of Christ on the cross for our sins. Think about that more and more. We should never drift away from thinking about it. We should never tire of hearing about it and, and reading about it and thinking about it and all these things. But the cross of Christ and his propitiation for our sins shows us a few things, one of which is the awfulness of our sins before a holy God. Nothing teaches us the debt of our sin before God like seeing the price that was paid for our salvation by the death of his son. Jesus Christ coming as the propitiation for our sins and taking the wrath of God the Father upon him teaches us and reminds us of the awfulness of our debt of sin before God outside of Christ. Second, nothing shows us the wonder of the love of God towards sinners like us, that he would send forth his son, his only begotten son, to be the propitiation for our sins and take the wrath of God in our place that we might be saved. That's really the thing that John focuses on most in our text. Third, nothing assures us of the certainty of our salvation, like the truth of Christ having been made a propitiation for our sins. When the price for your sins and mine has been paid in full by the death of God's Son, what else could be left for you and I to pay? 
Nothing. It's paid in full. As Jesus said on the cross, it is, it is finished. And if this is the case, surely John's conclusion throughout the text in verses 7 to 12 is, is the correct one. What does he say in verse 7? And it's really in light of propitiation. Beloved, let us love one another. That is one of the responses besides just praise and thanksgiving that we need to offer to God is loving one another. And as John Stott notes in his book, The Cross of Christ, not only is the cross of Christ, that is his propitiation, not only is the cross of Christ the ground of a free salvation, the basis by which God saves us, but it is also then the most powerful incentive to a holy life. So this doctrine doesn't lead to, to antinomianism. It doesn't lead to licentiousness and sin. It leads by all who believe to a holy and more increasing holiness of life by those who believe. Amen.